Hi, this is Ben Lowell with Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John Newfeld. Today we continue our series, The Triumph of the Lamb, Volume 2, with a message entitled, God Protects His Own. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. One day, Abraham was standing with God overlooking the plain that led to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God had just declared to Abraham that he was going to destroy those cities because, in God's words, their sins were very grave. Abraham's immediate question was this, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? That's no small question. What kind of a God actually exists? One day, the prophet Habakkuk was sitting on the watchtower on the outside wall of Jerusalem, and he's looking out. God had just told him that he was going to destroy the city of Jerusalem because they had become a wicked city and the law was trampled down. Violence was everywhere. Justice never went out. The day of punishment was upon the city. And among the things that Habakkuk wanted to know was, in the day of destruction, what would happen to the righteous men and women who lived in Jerusalem? Again, the question remains, what does God do for the righteous when judgment is at hand? Perhaps the seven churches in Asia Minor were wondering these very same things. I mean, after all, life had become very difficult. Church in Smyrna was facing tribulation and poverty and slander. The church of Pergamum had just recently seen one of their own being martyred. Church of Philadelphia was being openly persecuted by the synagogue. And all the churches were facing the imperial might of Rome. And furthermore, the last living apostle had been exiled to the Greek island of Patmos. But now, in order to encourage the churches, Jesus had revealed that he had a scroll of destiny in his hand and was slowly breaking the seals. At some undisclosed time, all the seals would be broken, and when that occurred, the day of the Lord would be disclosed. Among other things, the stars would fall from the sky and violent upheavals would happen on earth as God prepared to judge not just one city, one empire, but the entire earth. And yet, if he would do this, well, the next question is very much like the question that Abraham had asked, or for that matter, Habakkuk had asked. When God's wrath fell upon a cursed world, what would become of those who bowed the knee before Christ and were waiting for hope in the day of the Lord? Would they suffer along with the wicked? The book of Revelation is a fascinating book. Just when we think we understand the drama, we're surprised over and over again. See, up till now, all the drama has been taken up in an inevitability. Jesus, the lamb that was slain for the sins of his people, was found worthy to open the scroll of destiny. Slowly, ever so slowly, he's pictured as as breaking the seven seals, which will open the book and usher in the great and terrible day of the Lord. And just when we get to the drama of his finger breaking the seventh seal and opening the book, we come to an interlude that lasts for an entire chapter. And as we will see, the interlude deals with a sealing of 144,000 from every tribe of the sons of Israel. It's as if John stops the drama of the book and says to the reader, before we come to the climax, there's something very important I need to tell you. And so let's read our text. I'm reading Revelation chapter 7, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on the earth or sea or against any tree. Now, when we read Revelation, context is so very important. Since we stand at the precipice of the outpouring of the wrath of God on the entire earth, it's about to be judged, we need to see the winds as winds of God's wrath. 
See, at the present time, John sees four mighty angels holding back the inevitable wrath of God. It's only calm at present because the angels that God has appointed are appointed to allow for a time of calm before the great storm begins. That is, before Jesus breaks the seventh seal and opens the book, the scroll of destiny, the coming day of the Lord. So let's keep reading verses 2 and 3. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising sun with the seal of the living God, and he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth and the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And so now we get to the explanation why it is that the seventh seal has not yet been broken. There is a work to do before the inevitable day of the Lord arrives. Now, as a bit of explanation so we don't get confused, there is no relationship between the seals on the scroll and the seals that will be put on the foreheads of the servants of God. The seals on the scroll are exactly that. They're symbols that anyone in the ancient world would have understood. Ancient scrolls, in order to protect anyone from tampering with them, would have contained a seal or even a series of seals on the top of a document. When an official received an important scroll, he would check to see if the seals had been broken. See, if the seals remained intact, he could be assured that the documents that he had received were authentic. They were from the hand of the sender. But the seals on the foreheads of the servants of God are a very different matter. What we're reading doesn't literally happen. It's symbolic. The seals are imprints upon the servants of God to show they belong to God. See, the Bible speaks of us as having been sealed with the Holy Spirit, meaning that we are His possession. And so in Revelation, we're we're given a picture, an image, a symbolic picture of God sealing His servants before the day of wrath actually arrives. It's It's a picture of God distinguishing His people from the rest of mankind so that the distinction between the people purchased with the blood of Christ is made explicit. Now, of course... We should not imagine a time in the future where people of God, they actually get a mark on their foreheads. Instead, we should imagine a picturesque way of describing that when the day of wrath arrives, God will in some fashion act on behalf of his people. Now, we've got to think about that for a while. When God brought judgment on Egypt during the time of Moses, this was the reality. See, if you remember the account of this well, you're going to recall that the first three plagues seem to affect everyone. I mean, first, the Nile becomes blood. Second, frogs cover the land of Egypt. And third, gnats overwhelmed Egypt so that the gnats covered the land like the dust of the earth. Now, those things happened to the Egyptians and they happened to the Israelites at the same time. But then the fourth plague, this one is the plague of flies. And I'm reading Exodus 8, 21 to 23. There we read, behold... I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. And I hope you see this. It's like putting a seal on the heads of his people. And then as we continue to read, we find out that God pours out wrath on Egypt. And while he's doing that, he's protecting his people Israel. And finally, when God kills the firstborn, no firstborn in Israel is slain. God makes a distinction 
or a separation between Israel and Egypt. See, the sealing of God's people in Revelation seems just like that. Imagine what that must have meant for the seven churches in Asia, the ones who who heard this message in the first place. I mean, up till now, it must have been apparent to them. (laughs) They weren't going to be exempt from suffering. Indeed, as we've read through the last section of Revelation, that should be readily apparent. God's people were not exempt from horrible suffering. And that, in case you missed it, is the picture of the white-robed martyrs who are under the altar. The Antichrist will, will pour out his wrath on the church. Indeed, later, we'll meet the great prostitute of Babylon who is literally drunk from drinking the blood of the saints. So let's not confuse the message. Being a Christian does not exempt you from suffering. But here, with the sealing of God's people, we find that God's people may not be exempt from the wrath of the beast, but they are exempt from the wrath of the Lamb. That is, he seals his own. And now, of course, we can already hear the question, just just how will God on the day of wrath protect his people? But here I'm going to say something. We're going to have to wait, and we're going to have to be very careful not to read our answers into the text and get the answers that we're looking for. Rather, we're going to be careful now to read what the text is actually telling us and letting the text tell us how it answers these questions. See, up to this point in time, we are given no indication as to how God will protect his people, but we are given at this point in time a direct assurance. The Lord knows those who are his own. There should be no doubt about that. Even though we may be called upon to suffer for Christ and to suffer at the hands of an evil world, we will never be called upon to suffer at the hands of Christ. Christ has sealed his own so that when the day of his wrath arrives, we are not subject to that. For there is no greater assurance than to bear his seal upon our lives. And by the way, there is no greater peril than to go through life without the seal of Christ on our lives. The Back to the Bible Canada-Israel experience is scheduled to return May of 2018. Back by popular demand, we return to the Promised Land accompanied by Bible teacher Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, and very special musical guests. Your days will be filled visiting incredible biblical locations such as King David City, the Jordan River, and an exclusive sailing on the Sea of Galilee that includes a time of Bible teaching and worship. There'll be special evening events planned that will include a musical concert and evenings with Phil Calloway and Dr. John Neufeld. Every detail is worked out to maximize the most memorable Israel experience you can imagine. All the details can be found at backtothebible.ca or call us at 1-800-663-2425. And we'll also be offering an optional Jordan extension for those that are interested. So register soon. One of the most difficult passages to understand is Revelation 7, 4-8. So let me read it now. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 
12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, and 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Now, this passage has created endless speculation. I know of a great many different interpretations of this text, and I suppose the easiest thing for me to do now is to say, I have no idea who the 144,000 are. The easiest conclusion, I suppose, also is that they refer to Jews, perhaps to Jews who have come to know Christ as their Savior and Lord. And again, even if we take that view, I know of multiple different options to describe exactly who these Jews are, including that they are Jews who have been saved through the tribulation. But there are a number of other theories as well. But as so many have pointed out, there are problems with this theory. For one, the list of the 12 tribes is a strange one at best. For one, the tribe of Dan, one of the 12 tribes, is missing from this list. And for another, the tribe of Joseph, which typically gets divided into two half-tribes, the half-tribe of Ephraim and the half-tribe of Manasseh, well, how do I say it? Well, it's wrong. The tribe of Joseph is mentioned, and then the tribe of Manasseh is mentioned, in effect, listing Manasseh two times. Truth be told, in every listing of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament, there is no list like this one. Now, I know, I know, there are those who argue that the reason the tribe of Dan is missing here is because it's assumed that the Antichrist is going to arise out of the tribe of Dan. But but even that sounds suspect to me. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 48, the prophet speaks about the final salvation of Israel, and he, and he lists there 12 tribes that will be saved in the final day of the Lord. And in that list, well, there you have it. Dan is included. And so we can see that from Ezekiel, there's every reason for believing that on the final day of salvation, it must include the descendants of Dan as well. So I conclude that the list of the 12 tribes of Revelation 7 do not seem to represent any other list that we have in the rest of our Bible. So, what are we to say about this strange list? Well, for one, it seems clear from reading the Old and the New Testament that God indeed has a special plan for the physical descendants of Abraham. We need go no further than to consider what Paul says about Israel in Romans chapters 9 to 11. In Romans 11, it contains a lengthy discussion over Israel's unbelief, comparing Israel to a branch that has been broken off from the vine. Indeed, as Israel has rejected the gospel, the Gentiles have been grafted into that very vine. But according to Paul, that's not the end of the story. See, several times in Romans 11, Paul speaks about a day of the national restoration of Israel. Verse 12, he speaks of the day which he calls their full inclusion. In verse 15, he speaks of their reconciliation. In verse 23, he speaks about them being grafted into the vine. And in verse 25, Paul speaks of a partial hardening on Israel until the full number of the Gentiles comes in. And then in verse 26, he makes a a startling promise. He promises a day, he says, when all Israel will be saved. That must include the tribe of Dan. Now, if you ask me when this will occur, I'm going to say, I believe it occurs during the millennium, but I'm getting way ahead of myself. At this moment, I want to say 
that there is indeed a promise that awaits the fulfillment of the physical descendants of Abraham, that is Israel, according to the flesh. God in the end has a plan for his people Israel. But having said that, let me also say that the New Testament contains, well, some rather startling statements about Gentile believers who believe in Jesus and who worship him as their savior. Listen, for example, to Galatians 3, 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Here's according to the promise. Hope you heard that. If you're a Gentile believer in Jesus Christ, you are the offspring of Abraham. That's the wonder of our salvation. We who are Gentiles were grafted into the vine of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, the prophets. We have inherited an amazing family tree. But Galatians 3 is not the only place where we read such amazing words. Consider Romans 2, 28 and 29. There Paul writes, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. And of course, consider Galatians 6, 15 and 16. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. And so when reading the New Testament, we see two parallel thoughts. The first is that it really is sometimes the case that the Gentiles are called the true Israel of God. And it is also true that God's calling upon the physical descendants of Abraham, that is, Israel according to the flesh, that God's not finished with them yet. God still has a plan for the Jewish people in the future. Now, given both of those realities, we must be very careful to deny neither of those. We come back now to the strange list that John has for us in Revelation 7. Now, from my vantage point, it seems to me that the list of Revelation 7, because of its unusual form, is John signaling us that in this case, the 144,000 is a list of not the physical descendants of Israel, but spiritual Israel, that is, all those, both Jews and Gentiles, who are called by Christ and who fall before him, worshiping him as Savior and Lord. This is a list of those who have been born again. But we still haven't come to the end of our discussion. Why are there 144,000 of them? And I think that part's really not that difficult at all. You'll have noticed that numbers have a highly symbolic meaning in the book of Revelation. 12 times 12,000. That's what we have here. 12 is the number which indicates the ideal. And so, from my vantage point, 12 times 12,000 indicates the full number of God's people. So, here's how I understand Revelation 7. Revelation 7 is an important chapter in this book. Just before the breaking of the seventh seal and opening up the scroll, as the church of Jesus Christ stands before the threshold of the, the great day of the Lord, we're given a picture of the church in two stages. The first stage is pictured in 144,000, the church standing in time, the church that's being martyred, the church that's suffering for Christ. Christ places his seal on them so that when wrath falls on the earth, they're going to be saved. The second stage, which we're going to look at tomorrow, is the church on the other side, standing victorious, having fought the fight, having finished the course, now standing before the throne of God victorious. And all of that is so very important. As the seven seals are being broken, and as the church evangelizes the world, and as the world continues on in brokenness and fallenness, and as the world lurches ever closer to the day when the judgment of God will fall, 
The church is being told, don't fear. God has placed a seal on you and you are his own. You know, I began by talking about Abraham overlooking Sodom and about Habakkuk stationed on the watchtower on the walls of Jerusalem and about Israel and Egypt at the time of the 10 plagues. Now here in Revelation, we have the answer. Will the righteous perish with the wicked? When the stars fall from the heavens and everything on earth shakes and the kings of the earth cry out in terror at the sight of him who sits on the throne, Revelation 7 stops the action, invites us to consider a more important truth. At that time, God knows how to protect his own from the day of judgment. What does that mean to us? Let me paint a picture here. It's been many years now since those airplanes flew into Twin Towers in New York City. Terrorists had hijacked the planes and were on a wild-eyed suicide mission to kill as many people as possible, including themselves. And on that day, terrorists died. So did innocent people on the planes, and so did people who worked in those towers on those days. In the mangled mess of evil and innocent people, it may seem to us that in the day of disaster, both the guilty and the innocent perish together. But Revelation 7 tells believers that God never forgets to look upon those who have the seal of God on their foreheads. In the day of the wrath of the Lamb, never for a moment forget this. God will not lose you in the crowd. Our lives are ever before him. And even though the present hour may be hard and even overwhelming, Our God remembers those who are his own and will save them in that day. Take heart, child of God. Our God counts your life as precious in his sight. He will keep you from the day of the wrath of the Lamb, and he will safely deliver you into the kingdom. John, let me ask you this question, maybe for some clarification. What you've said is that, you know, we're going to be protected from the wrath of God or God's wrath. He's put a seal on us. But that's not to say again that we're not going to suffer. Yeah, and we need to say that because I I know of stories of uh, believers in persecuted countries who, when they were persecuted, met their persecution with almost unbelief. We thought God would protect us. But the, the imagery that runs throughout Revelation, I mean, the, the whore of Babylon who's drunk on the blood of the saints, I mean, through the ages, we have had these despots who have made their business to try to ruin the people of God. And there are numerous examples of that. And, 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 and Paul uh, himself in, in Philippians 1.29 says, it has been granted to us not only to believe in Christ, but, but also to suffer for his sake. So I am making a distinction here between the suffering that unbelievers and evil governments place upon the believers and upon the final wrath of the Lamb. You know, I depict Jesus sitting on a white horse ready to pour out his wrath on the world, and he protects his own at that day. Thanks so much, John. Back to the Bible Canada. Well, we teach the Bible. We teach the Bible. Simple, but describes the core of mission at Back to the Bible Canada. Everything done is stimulated by a passion for connecting people to Jesus through the teaching of His Word. June is a critical month that allows Back to the Bible Canada to finish our fiscal year well and create a new launching pad for future ministry. This year's goal is $338,000. The goal is a great challenge, but it allows for the ministry to be sustained and new opportunities initiated. 
As an incentive, a group of ministry friends have committed to a $75,000 match campaign. So for every dollar, 50, 500, whatever your gift might be, will be matched dollar for dollar up to $75,000. If you believe in this ministry, join us with your investment in Bible teaching today. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca.